When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast number six of the 2022 hurricane season. On today's episode, we'll talk with the new director of the National Weather Service, Ken Graham. Until a couple of months ago, of course, Ken was the director of the National Hurricane Center, and now he's in charge of the entire National Weather Service, of which the Hurricane Center is a part. The previous director, the indomitable Louis Uccellini, retired at the first of the year. Louis had a tremendous impact on the weather service. He was a force of nature, if you knew him. So Ken has big shoes to fill. But people who have worked with Ken directly, and those of us who have known him for years, know that Ken is an excellent choice for that job at the National Weather Service. He'll bring his own touch to the incredibly complex and multifaceted job that it is. We'll talk about the National Weather Service director's job and a number of areas that Ken's responsible for coming up, like what's going on with the computer forecast models, the American GFS versus the European model, for example, probabilistic forecasting and how that will be a chance and a change in the future of predicting the weather, and also the new supercomputer at the National Weather Service, among Lots of other interesting stuff. My conversation with Ken Graham is coming up in just a moment. I'm recording this on Monday, August 15th, 2022. 30 years ago this week, the system that would become Category 5 Hurricane Andrew was moving across the tropical Atlantic. We in South Florida weren't really paying attention. Honestly, it was just a thing out there. We'll follow the Andrew timeline on foxweather.com and on Twitter and on Facebook this week into next. It's been quite a journey looking back at the satellite pictures and bulletins from 1992. I hope you'll check it out. Uh, It's really fascinating. Now in 2022, the tropics are amazingly quiet. It's not totally freaky yet, but it's getting there. The long-range computer models don't show anything of significance, so... Either they're wrong or it will get quite unusual if nothing develops in the last week of August or at least by the last week of August or the 1st of September. It would be very unusual. The 20th of August is nominally when the peak part of the hurricane season starts. We're not quite there yet, so let's see. There's still a lot of dust across the tropical Atlantic. On average, the dust diminishes around the middle of August And the disturbances coming off Africa have some room to develop, but of course, no sign of that yet. The La Nina in the Pacific, which generally favors Atlantic hurricane development, is getting even stronger. So if you had to put odds on it, you'd expect more Atlantic activity looking at the macro signs around the Earth that normally lead us to that conclusion. Well, the bottom line is, like I said, we'll see. It's kind of eerily quiet right now. So let's take a break, and I'll be back with my conversation with the new director of the National Weather Service, Ken Graham, in just a moment. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast, featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Ken, thanks for coming on. Yeah, good to good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, congratulations on your new job. For those of us that have known you a long time, it's well deserved. It's really terrific. No, I, I appreciate it, Brian. Known you for a long time, and you know we've we've had a lot of discussions over communications and hurricanes and all that. So, in this job, I get 
I get to talk about anything I want to about weather. So it's it's really expanded. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So how's it been? You know, is running the whole National Weather Service kind of a lot like taking on a big version of the National Hurricane Center or is that a really different animal? Yeah, it seems to be a different animal. You know, at the, the Hurricane Center, there was definitely, of course, running the center and, and that sort of thing. But it was it was pretty operational in, in nature. Um, and this, too, I mean, we're still paying attention to operations all the time in, in this job as well. But it, it ex- extends further out in time as well. I get to, to think about strategy. I get to think about weather service of the future. Uh, we, we did that at the Hurricane Center as well. But this seems to be just bigger, right? It's, it's not just tropical. It's not just hurricanes. But it's all the programs from flood to space to tsunami uh, fires. Just there's so many different topics to be able to talk about. But at the Hurricane Center, at least, you know, there was such an exposure to the international component, and that's going to continue in this job as well. Yeah, I, I can imagine that uh, there's just a lot more uh, going on with this job. So was your aspiration when you were just starting at a National Weather Service office or even leading a local weather service office to have a job like this? I don't think everybody necessarily wants all that responsibility. I think honestly, um, I, I always kind of did the job that I was in, and I tried to do it well, and was all in. I'm super passionate about, you know, weather. Um, the Earth is my favorite planet, and you know, I think even at six years old, I was taking observations. I was, I was puzzled by urban heat islands, even as a, a six or seven year old, riding around Arizona with the windows down with my parents, and going, I think the temperature just dropped ten degrees. What, what was that? Um, you know, floods. I was always fascinated with, with the weather. So I've always wanted to do that. So every job, I've always just done my job, so to mm-hmm. speak. I don't think I ever totally had aspirations for the next position. So that that's what makes this so humbling, honestly, Brian, because, you know, going from an intern meteorologist, a forecaster in, in, in New Orleans, and then working my way to this position is, is incredibly humbling. I never never thought I would see myself here as an operational uh, forecaster. Yeah, that, that's the way it's supposed to work, actually, because those are the people that make the best managers. If if you have the drive to be a manager and a, and a visionary, and I know that you do. So, uh, as you said, you, you grew up in Arizona, I know, uh, but, you know, most people that I talk to and I ask this question of, you know, where or what can you point to, to uh, what blizzard or hurricane or tornado or whatever it was, can you point to that gave you the passion for weather? I just wouldn't think that, uh, you know, a 120 degree day or a flooded arroyo would be the same kind of trigger, but I guess you're proof that it, it can be just extreme weather or unusual weather or interesting weather can be it. Yeah, it was it was one of those really strong El Nino years. It was around uh, the early 80s, 82 or so, and it just we mm-hmm. kept getting rain and upon mm-hmm. rain, um, and, and the flooding was significant. And I already was interested in weather by that point, but it was being evacuated. It was being mm-hmm. evacuated in the middle of the night, and and I I didn't understand why. It's like this is just really interesting. So just looking at a set of encyclopedias that were my great grandfather's, and going through those and. And, and seeing that the ties to the tropics, the ties to, to El Nino, the precipitation in the desert southwest, it got me into it. And it, yeah. it only took, what, two, three, four inches of rain to cause that type of flooding, which was mm-hmm. fascinating to me as well. So it was, it's all, you know, it's all just perspective on, on where you are. But it was those big events like that that really got me into tropical weather, got me into to, to meteorology in general. So it just... It's, yeah, we all have those big events. That's one of the big ones for me. Yeah. So when you went to Mississippi State for your master's degree, was that what brought you to the South originally? Yeah, yeah. Packed everything I owned in a car, Brian. Drove across the country for the first time. Uh, landed up there at Mississippi State and uh, my first time and, and got to experience weather that I never got to experience before. I got to experience two points that I've never experienced in my life, yeah. uh, which was amazing. And the thunderstorms and the tornadoes. And, and it was then, I think you and I have talked about this before. It was the epiphany there to, to see how people are impacted by this, right? It was yeah. there that you saw the damage after a tornado or a flood or a big event. And, and it was there that, that I had the, the real connection of, wow, this is the, the science, but it really impacts people. And, and it is about that communication while I was doing television weather there. It's about the communication. It's about getting that information out, translating that science. And that has been such a passion of mine ever since. So uh, what was your focus? I don't think I know. What was your focus in your master's? Or did you have a, 
a focus at that time? It was all communication. It was literally how people receive information and what they do with it. That was the same as me, by the way. Mine was in in, uh, meteorology and communications. I did a lot of uh, research on how people perceive the weather casts on the two TV stations of Tallahassee. One of them was mine, (laughs) was me doing it. And then the other station, and I, I had my students do this big research project on how people perceived the forecast. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that, that that's the orientation that you took in your master's. The same thing, and it's a passion. It, it's, it looked at you know, where people, it looked at where people get information, weather radio, television, regular radio. Um, and, and at the time, you know, internet was in its infancy, it was barely there, right? So now a survey would include social media and you know, there'd be a whole longer list of ways to get information now compared to when I was in college. So um, it, it looked at that because it's how people get information. And I always, you, you and I've done the interviews before and I've mentioned this, you know, how my mom gets information is different than how I get information, it's how right. very different than my daughters get information. And that plays a critical role in us being able to get the information out to get the, the decisions that we need. Yeah, it's much more complicated now, <laughs> more difficult to research, I think, as a matter of fact. Yeah. In fact, I think in many ways more difficult to communicate. So what do you remember from doing TV in Mississippi? Wasn't it Columbus, Mississippi, was it? Yeah, Columbus, Mississippi. That, that's the t- television weather there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you remember what do you remember about that experience of, you know, being a, a TV weather guy? You know, I think I think there's there's interesting stories associated with that. It was. Of course, when you first start, you're pretty nervous. It was the first time I've ever done anything like that. But then, you know, it, it didn't take long to, to realize what we were just talking about. It's, it was, you know, being in, in my mid-20s at the time, I, you know, you have an atmospheric science degree. You've got all these physics classes. There's so much science associated with all that. It was interesting how I look back at, you know, almost looking forward to the next event. We do a little as scientists, but it's, it's, it's looking towards... Um, you know, being on air, right? Part of it was like, I'm on air. I'm, it was just the, all, all of that part of it. It, was, it wasn't this full connection with, with how it impacted people. And it was one of those, those big events where, you know, a tornado event where somebody, you know, basically calls in ahead of time and starts talking about, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm, I'm in, a, in, in a mobile home. This is where I live. I don't know what to do. And just a conversation about, you know, getting out of the mobile home, getting into a ditch and really trying to protect yourself and your family, protect your head. Just that conversation seemed so casual until hours later when the person said that the trailer was gone and they lived. It was, Brian, it was such an epiphany at that point mm-hmm. that, that connected all the science and, and made me realize really what this is all about. And it really is truly about people. And it wasn't long after that that I joined the, the National Weather Service, first job in, in New Orleans as an intern. And uh, it's been a passion ever since, absolute passion ever since. So that television weather job taught me it was all about that connecting the science to, to, you know, a warning to something that's understood, actionable, and, and can really save a life as all of us together. That that hit hard, and it never it never went away. And and, and you and I know each other, uh, uh, as I recall, from your time as the meteorologist meteorologist in charge of the New Orleans area National Weather Service office. And we've always talked about communications, getting a clear message to the public. But it feels like to me that that was before there was a big realization within the National Weather Service that communicating is an intrinsic part of the forecasting process. Uh, is, is that, you know, did you feel like you were a pioneer in, in uh, you know, stressing that we need to think harder about communications uh, while we're thinking about the meteorology? Yeah, I think there was a bunch of us, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that was, look, getting into the, the, the weather service, it was, you know, you know it was basically the, the warning was put out, right? So you hit enter um, and then your job was done. Mm-hmm. I got the warning out and that was, right. that was how it, it, it was in the early nineties. So Throw it over was, the transom, I, I think yeah, was what basically. they said actually. Yes. Got, got the warning out. Yeah, um, right. But it, 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 with time, there it really, there was, you know, my generation coming in and others coming in that really said there, there's more, right? There's more. There's, there's, does the emergency manager understand that? Anybody call the emergency manager? We, so one of our closest partners, the emergency manager is doing such a great job, you know, with all these multiple disasters of, of recent. Um, do they understand it? Because they're amplifiers. Mm-hmm. Are we, are we, 
looking at making sure everybody that's on radio and television, so are we all on one page? And that's where we started looking at uh, NWS chat back in uh, when I was in Birmingham and really looking at how could we all communicate in the heat of the battle. So it's been, yeah, it was those early days and figuring out how to do, do new ways to do it. Getting on the weather radio, Brian, this is a story. I don't think I've ever told this one. And I was pretty much told to be monotone on the weather radio and, and coming from television. I said, I don't know. This is the days that you recorded it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I and, and I, I remember I'll never forget the day getting on the weather radio and saying, hi, everybody. Hi, New Orleans and Baton Rouge. You're listening to <laughs> NOAA weather radio. And a, a finger and a hand came in and hit stop. And they said, you can't talk like that. So anyway, that I've never told that story. It's a true story. Um, yeah, because so the No Weather Radio had this sort of sort of computer esque sort of uh, voice that was kind of expected, so that it would be uniform. I guess was the idea, but you were treating it like a radio station, which really yeah, it is, totally. and, and yeah. I'm sure that communicated better. Yeah, yeah. So the, there was the, already finding ways to mm -hmm. uh, to communicate differently to, to get the message across. So yep, and uh, there's a, there's a whole bunch of us that that really take took it serious at that time, and I think they're still as passionate today as they were back then. Yeah, even and and it really has permeated the uh, the weather service in very good ways. So in southeastern Louisiana, I mean, there's a rich history and and culture there and along the Mississippi coast, but they're extremely precarious places due to the physical realities of the shape and elevation of the land and the water and and all of the issues there. I can imagine you learned uh, important lessons there, maybe more than you, you would learn just about anywhere else. Does that sound right to you? And wh what stands out in your mind about your time serving there uh, at least twice, I guess, right? Yeah, 15 years, Brian, I spent, spent in Louisiana, including, you know, the, the intern job and the, the forecaster job, and then as the meteorologist in charge. So that's a Louisiana's Mississippi, that whole area has always got a special place for me spending so much time there but yeah you see look you, you see the impacts of, of these these big events there was tornadoes there was big tornadoes that that we had to deal with and impacted people you see you see hurricanes you see the flooding you see big time flood events it's just you you see a frequency of, of big disasters there that that it, that it really impacts you forever right you really see those you see the impacts on people and a couple things that stand out i think one is look it's 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 one thing to to have one disaster, right? And then, you know, a disaster of a lifetime, so to speak. It is a whole different conversation when you have multiple disasters, consecutive disasters. You, you know, you, you have, you lose your house, you, you have big impacts one year, and then you do again in three or four years. That's what's tough. It's those, mm -hmm. it's the consecutive um, disasters that, that really make it tough. So I, you know, I really see, um, you know, people going through so much, but the other thing too, is you see how the world's changing. You know, you see, I, I love the story in, in St. Bernard Parish in Louisiana doing the hurricane exercise and the, and the elderly gentleman taking me upstairs in this concrete building to the rooftop with a cane walking upstairs. And I was like, I hope I didn't say anything wrong in that, that presentation. But no, it was the opposite. He, Brian, he goes, look at that field. What do you see? And I, I, I looked over the, the building. I said, I see water. And he goes, he took out an old black and white photo. And he goes, what do you see in this picture? I said, well... I see some boys playing baseball. I see some old pickup trucks backed up to that field. He goes, see that boy right there? I said, yeah. He goes, that's me. And he goes, that's in that field. And, and it was, people are seeing the change. I mean, it was interesting how that was a, a baseball's field and now, it, now it's underwater. So you're seeing those changes. You're seeing the impact of, 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 of changes to our environment, changes to climate type of thing. So I don't know, those are some things that stand up for me, just the frequency of events. Uh, you know, and it's hard to recover from that and just the changing environment over time. Yeah, the the land is dropping and the water is rising, right? In, in southeastern Louisiana, you look at past pictures just from space uh, of the difference. It's really remarkable. And there's all kinds of efforts underway to try and arrest that. I mean, it's it's a very, very complicated and fascinating and full of interesting people kind of place. It really is I hope you're enjoying my conversation with National Weather Service Director Ken Graham. I'll be back with more in just a minute.
So for many reasons, including tropical systems that you dealt with in Louisiana and Mississippi, and the support systems that you develop with emergency managers and other entities, you're the logical guy, we all thought so, to take over at the National Hurricane Center, which, uh, which we were all very happy about. Uh, uh, that must have been some kind of thrill, wasn't it? Uh, or was it daunting on some level when that appointment came through? Yeah, every every new job is, is daunting, right? I mean, a lot of it is, you know, going from a meteorologist in charge to that job, it was it was bigger, right? Geography was bigger, and not just dealing with the, the United States. There were twenty eight countries that were we were responsible for in that at forecasting and, and coordinating the watches and warnings. So it's just the vastness of it, the travel, the international part, um, all of that was just bigger, right? It was just larger uh, responsibility. So daunting at first, absolutely. But what an honor! I mean, to be able to uh, to be in that that job and and Brian, what a well, what a ride it was! I mean, if you think about you know the, the years how busy some of those years were, um, you think of some of the names of the storms. You think of Florence, you think of Michael, Ida, Laura, Dorian. The list goes on. There's so many um, storms that that happened in, in my tenure there. Ran out of names in 2020 and in 2021. Um, so yeah, just a daunting task, but what an honor! Every one of these positions has been honestly humbling and it's such an honor to be a, be a part of it and try to make a difference. And that's, I guess that's what life's about, right? Mm -hmm. If you, you really, you take these positions to try to make it, make a difference. Well, I can tell you that I think your greatest legacy at the Hurricane Center is the team you left in place there the, and the outstanding young people that came in during your time and, and continue to come in are, are an example of that legacy. I think bench strength is one of the best tributes uh, to a manager. Uh, is there something some one storm that stands out for you in your time in Miami, or was it kind of the relentlessness of challenging forecasts and kind of, uh, you know, never before seen situations like that Dorian situation with the giant, incredibly strong hurricane sitting right off of Florida. But here in Miami, we did not have a hurricane warning. I mean, you know, what stands out to you? I mean, that that's definitely one of them. I mean, look, you look at a situation like that, if you go back, I don't know, if you go back 15, 20 years, what do you think? A good evacuation of 3 million people plus would have been a massive evacuation just going back a few decades. And I think it's remarkable, honestly, uh, to see the, the improvements in the forecast to the point where we have the confidence to, you know, probably as many as 3 million people didn't have to evacuate in Dorian uh, because of that confidence in that forecast. That's staggering. I mean, that is absolutely staggering to look at some of that those statistics. So, you know, I, I look at, uh, that storm, I, I think that one stands out. I think, you know, you look at, um, my gosh, Hurricane Lori, you look at Michael. I, th I think what stands out to me is some of the rapid intensification that, that that happened during my tenure at the Hurricane Center. I mean, you look at, you know, historically, I, I think you and I have talked about this stat. It's staggering when, when somebody thinks of the big storms that hit this country. They, I don't know, they have a perception that they're crossing the Atlantic. You see them coming. There's plenty of time, but the data is, does not support that. Every storm that's hit this country in the last 100 years at 150 miles per hour or greater was a tropical storm or less three days out. They're all fast. They're all fast. And, and you go back to Michael, you go back to, to Laura, Ida, um, every one of these storms was these rapid intensifiers, these fast, um, they, they strengthen so quickly and it shortens the timeline for emergency managers. That's what stands out. I think one of the, my biggest takeaways is, you know, we, we've approved the forecast. How going forward, do we give emergency managers and everybody more time in the timeline? You know, how do we get to that seven days? How do we get further out in time before the storm even barely is a cloud, right? How are we already being able to model that and, and, and look at where that storm is going? Um, that stands out in my mind as a lasting um, thought on, on how we can improve things and keep growing into the future. So I, I assume that uh, because you and I have talked about it so much, this rapid developing especially small storm, the Hurricane Michaels, Andrew, Camille kind of storm. Is that the scenario that worries you the most going forward as a now as the director of the National Weather Service? You know, I think I think when you talk about tropics, yeah, it's always those. It's going to be those rapid intensifiers. It's the short timelines. It's always going to be those storms. It's always going to be um, also what happens inland. It it, it always you know, I always thought about all the impacts. You go back to Camille, you know, here's a category five that, that hits the Mississippi coast and more people died in Virginia 
than they did along the Mississippi coast. It's mm -hmm. you look at Ida, there were more direct fatalities in, in New York than they were in Louisiana uh, from from Hurricane Ida. Um, I, I look at the indirect fatalities of these storms. I look at the impacts inland and you know the, the, the rainfall rates, the flooding, the wind inland. I think it's one of these things that that I still uh, worry about uh, going forward. It's the indirect fatalities associated with uh, using generators, right? You know, think yeah. about a think about Hurricane Laura. Yeah. Well, Brian, we we had an 18 foot storm surge in Hurricane Laura, but we we did everything we could because of the improvements in the watches and warnings coordination. Everybody got out. We don't, we didn't lose anybody in the storm surge in, in Laura, but we lost quite a few people from generators. So how do we keep having these discussions about um, you know the, this indirect? But I think in this job. It's it's more than tropics. It, it's looking at a fire season that that used to be a season. Now it seems to be year round. Mm -hmm. It's looking at, you know, these 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 small events that are a massive impact. These these rainfall events out of nowhere. You get very tough to predict. By the way, you know, a ten inch, twelve inch rainfall in in a in a place with terrain or an urban area, and you have just massive flooding and loss of life. It's it's those type of events that that we you know, really are looking at how to model that, how to communicate that and those things going forward. So for me, it's, it's, it's looking at, it's interesting in this job, it's space weather, by the way, I just got back from Boulder and, and looked at all the implications of, of space weather, that, that's a big thing here, and tsunami. We're, we're responsible for the tsunami warnings also in the, in the weather service and how can we do that um, really well. So for me here, it's, it's really interesting in this job. Um, I don't wanna say the worry, but the concern and the challenge has grown significantly on how to take all these different aspects of what we do and how do you communicate that in the heat of the battle to make sure we get the, the response that we need. So let's uh, pause a second and talk about space weather. You know, I don't think, I've done a lot of podcasts. I don't think one time I've talked about space weather and I wouldn't plan to talk about it today. But to me, it's interesting. Is it the idea of predicting like a Carrington event where you're going to get a big burst of energy from the sun and that's going to be disruptive in the same way that a big, storm would be is when you talk about space weather is that what you mean yeah it, it's amazing we we have a crew that's in boulder they're watching they're watching the sun all the time i mean they're really <laughs> watching to see yeah. uh, any sort of discharge associated with the sun if they see any any discharge there, there's an incredible science of, of of getting that information measuring it and then putting it into models to see what that's going to do is it going to miss the earth is it going to hit the earth i mean just an amazing um, science that takes place with this group at the at, at the Space Weather Center there, and and if it's going to hit the Earth, they try to measure the intensity and try to coordinate that around around different countries. And you're thinking about impl implications to communication, satellite. Um, you, you think about all the the impacts that can happen on Earth if it's a big enough discharge. It could be have a huge disruption, everything from power um, to to those communications. So they try to get those warnings out. They literally issue watches and warnings, uh, for those, those events. So you know, power companies and other folks, um, can really some, take some precautions and they do take precautions. They actually do things to be able to absorb, uh, that energy from the sun. But if it's a big enough event, it could be a significant impact to the, to the planet. Yeah, I know. I've, I've read about, you know, what would happen if another Carrington event was at 1859, sticks in my mind, uh, were to happen. I mean, back then there were telegraph lines. That was all there were, right? And the telegraph lines got you got supercharged and people got shocked and they broke and, and a variety of fires started and a variety of things uh, happened. And, and so it's a bit of speculation, but people are very concerned about if it's power lines and communication satellites and other kinds of satellites, like you say. It, uh, do, you, do you feel like there are, you know, procedures in place? Is this something we think about? I mean, it's not like, you know, in our lifetime that anything, I know we've had some of these, but not in a significant category five kind of way, right? I don't, you know, I don't know how they're characterized. I don't know anything about it, actually. I feel like I should. Yeah, no, look at, and, and you know what? Um, let's, set, let's set one up. If you want to do a future podcast just talking about that, we, could, we definitely got the right folks to be able to come on. It's fascinating stuff. It, it is. really it's is. Not, so, we're going to do that. That's a good idea. Yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll set it up. But yeah, there's exercises, there's planning, um, there, there's all sorts of activity to, to get ready for one of those events. But that's just another thing that the Weather Service does, another part of our mission that most people don't realize. Right. It's true, true. So we've talked uh, over the last several years anyway about probabilistic forecasts and, and formalizing their use in some way, you know, not just for hurricanes, but 
in weather forecasting in general. What does that, does that mean to you? And in practice, how do you see it working differently from what we do today? What, what I would like to see, and it's, it's in one of my top priorities, is um, to really start moving towards probabilistic forecasting. And it's, it's different from what somebody might think it is. It's not really saying, well, we already have. There's a 20% chance of rain. There's a 40% chance of this and that. It's a little bit different than that. It's, it's more about decision making. It's more about looking at, you know, one of the most common things, Brian, that people ask if, I, if I'm at an emergency operations center or uh, doing a briefing, whether it's a hurricane or whatever it is, almost always the, the question comes, well, what's the worst case scenario? Mm -hmm. Or, Ken, what do you really think? I mean, that's, that's another <laughs> yeah. one that always seems to happen. Well, yes, we all get that. Yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and so what, what I really want to do is I want to put some, some science behind the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. So there, there's ways with the new supercomputer that, that we're able going to be run more ensembles. We're going to be able to run uh, more scenarios for a particular event because I mean, people, I, people come up to me, they, they say, you're the one that says little wiggles matter. Yes, I'm the one that's always said that. So little wiggles really matter. And, and if you think about it, deterministic forecast, in other, in other words, one solution, what, what if it moves 20 miles? What, what if it moves 30 or 40 miles? You got a different scenario. You got a different amount of rain. And you know, you could, you could move in, in 20 or 30 miles and have the difference between getting an inch of rain or a foot. So those little wiggles really do matter when, when it comes to um, forecasting. So what I'm talking about with probabilistic forecasting is really looking at, you know, exceedance values. In other words, having information that to an emergency manager or decision maker that says there's only a 10% chance of this value being exceeded. Well, I like that worst case scenario. There's science behind that. You know, it's not made up. This is what could happen. I mean, a meteorologist or, you know, a lot of us can make up all sorts of worst case scenarios. We could take the moon out of orbit. I mean, we, we, we can come up with all sorts of stuff. So this is really um, similar to what we do in storm surge. It, it's looking at, here's a solution. There's only 10% of this being exceeded. And, and, and that really helps out with that worst case scenario. That way it, it accounts for those little wiggles. I, I think that's a way to go. And if you, if, by the way, if your tolerance, if you have a higher tolerance, you know, you, you don't have to use that 10%. You can use something different. There's some choices out there for those decision makers. That's what I'm talking about when it comes to probabilistic forecasting. So probabilistic forecasts essentially require people, citizens, or mostly emergency managers or agencies or schools to get used to setting thresholds for action, right? I mean, for example, school district figures, it figures out somehow that they should cancel school for tomorrow if there's more than a 20% chance of four inches of snow or, or something like that. That's, isn't that really where we want to get to for these kind of decisions uh, that have to do with school or evacuations or other sorts of actions that agencies or individual businesses uh, or anybody else might take? I, I agree. And, and those thresholds could be different. It could be county parish based. It could be you know, it could be, you know, the, think about the tolerance of a, a hospital is a, a lot different than maybe the tolerance of me sitting in my home, right? Maybe I've got some factors that I, I can handle a little bit more, but you don't want to take a chance at a hospital or another critical infrastructure type of situation. So, yeah, it's about those thresholds. It's about looking at, you know, what is that worst case scenario? What could I handle? What do I don't want to be caught with? I'd rather take precautions and keep people safe than be caught off guard by a little wiggle. Um, so it, it really is looking at it dif differently. And I think it's important to decision making because it accounts for these these events where, you know, the, there's always uncertainty in everything that we do. So it really accounts for well, what how bad could it get? What's my tolerance? What's my threshold? And how does that impact my decision? The thing I've been talking about a lot lately in different presentations, including on the AMS weather band I did uh, last week, was is the kind of reality in the world uh, because of the storm surge and the work, a lot of the work that uh, you and the team did at the Hurricane Center, that we really have these different things today that we still call forecasts, right? We have these 50% most likely forecasts, uh, for instance, you know, what's the high temperature going to be today? That's somewhere in the middle of some kind of distribution or the middle of the cone is more or less the 50%, you know, best chance kind of thing. But we also have these 
storm surge projections that, as you said, are kind of reasonable worst case, 90% chance of it uh, happening within that range that's predicted only a 10% chance that it's going to be worse than that. I find in talking even to broadcast meteorologists that they're that the idea that we call both of those forecasts, or at least they are called generally both forecasts, uh, boggles their mind a, a bit. And it did mine too, honestly, when the storm surge uh, predictions and the, the new storm surge kind of graphics and all first came out. I really had to think about, okay, how am I going to talk about this? Uh, because they really are uh, fundamentally different. And I wonder if you've, you know, if you've thought about the fact that we really kind of use the same word for talking about two different concepts. Yeah, you know, it, it's we'll have to think about how to do that. I think it's interesting how we do it in storm surge. If you notice, we because we want to account for those little wiggles, that that 10% exceedance is actually our forecast. Right. So right. in the end, in the end, you know, that that map that's put out, not everybody's going to get that. But the, the problem becomes there's, there's so many big decisions that have to be made uh, well ahead of time that that you can't evacuate at the last second. So what you have to do is you got to account for those little wiggles. So that's what I'm talking about. It's interesting how we it's almost as if we disguise that worst case scenario, uh, that probabilistic forecast into something that looks so deterministic. Isn't mm -hmm. that interesting? Because once it's deterministic, it's easier to make make a decision on. So that that is something. So we're going to have to evolve social science with this. We're going to have to figure out what do we call it? What does it look like? Uh, you know, is it do we is everything going to look so deterministic, but it really is accounting for those little wiggles? Is that really what we want to be the forecast? That's something we're going to have to have some big conversations about because and, and it's not just surge. It's I think about. Um, big rain events, you know, small changes that can, can change that. But how about wind? How about, you know, you get you get a wind event that, you know, here's here's the, the most likely scenario. But for you, uh, the 10% exceedance is actually getting hurricane force winds. And, and you have an infrastructure that's sensitive to that. That's good information. So is it is a, is, a um, is, is that going to be the forecast? Is that a better way to portray winds? Because Brian, in my experience, I've seen I see it in, in every storm. People get so deterministic that they could be a mile or two away from those core winds and they're relieved. Mm -hmm. I see it. I see it all the time. They're well, like, well, the, the phone apps don't wind. help that, Ken, because the phone apps are going to tell you what the wind is supposed to be, you know, at your tent right here, as opposed to telling you this uh, this possibility that they could be significantly higher than that, at least in gusts or something like that, right? Exactly. That's critical. That's mm -hmm. a critical conversation that, that we have to we have to have because if you make the decision that I'm outside of that core and, and again how about a five or ten mile little wiggle and now you got hurricane force winds and you got people in the water. You got people without power, you got people they can't get out, you got people under the rubble, right? This is this is the seriousness of, of what we're talking about here. So we have to figure out ways to be more probabilistic, but we can't communicate 10 different solutions, right? We can't communicate in, in ways that are gonna make decision-making freeze up. It, ha it has to be portrayed in ways that's still actionable, but has science around that worst case scenario without over-exaggerating, because you don't want, look, the other issue is false alarms. You don't want too many false alarms because they're not gonna take action the next go around as well. So there's some challenges with this. It's the right way to go. Um, but there's some challenges how to communicate. Social scientists are going to be right by us. They're going to be really close as we go down this road. And, and they were, by the way, for Storm Surge. Storm Surge was completely designed with social science um, in mind, social scientists in the room, um, focus groups. I mean, it was an incredible effort to get that done. Yeah, I remember. I remember. Time for a break. Back with more in just a moment. Well, it seems to me that this technique of setting these these or delivering these percentages and, and getting emergency managers and decision makers to set thresholds so that that whole system works together is really for extreme events, right? So somehow what we need to do is adapt the system to understand that when an event is extreme, that a different paradigm comes into play, right? So it's kind of, okay, we're in 
uh, code red now because <laughs> now we're doing it a different way and we're communicating yeah. these these kind of threshold percentages that the system hopefully by that time would develop to adapt to. Feels and it, like to me. And, it, and it's those those advertised big events, right? You see the hurricane coming or we see a big severe weather event coming, but how about the other ones? Brian, what about what about the the there's a 40% chance of rain today, but the precipital water is is several inches and wherever this occurs is going to be heavy rain. How do we how do we look at modeling that that gets down to that scale to say here are some areas that cross a threshold that that you can see some serious flash flooding. And so it's not a warning yet. It's not a you could be under a flash flood watch, maybe, maybe not. And and so how do you how do you identify areas that ahead of time that could be um, cross on thresholds in that that regard? That's going to take some fancy modeling. It's going to take some work. Um, but how do you capture those those big events that are, are you got incredibly short notice on? Uh, you, you may get an hour warning and you may get two hours warning. Uh, but at the same time, is that is that enough for somebody to go somewhere? Is that somebody is that enough for somebody to maybe get out of that area, get into a lower percentage area? See, it, it's 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 all how we we look at the warnings of the future, and that's something that that we're going to be looking at as well in our future. I think it's important. Yeah, I was living in Colorado, actually working in TV news at the time, not uh, in weather when the big Thompson flood happened and uh you know that was this incredible thunderstorm complex at the top of a canyon that came washing down the canyon it was a horrendous disaster uh and ever since that time i mean that was 1976 i think uh ever since that time i thought how in the world are we ever going to be able to warn people that you know that something like that is happening to get out of a canyon, which you just don't, you know, you don't go up the side walls. I mean, it was, you have to get in or out of the canyon one direction or the other. Um, anyway, it, these things are, are <laughs> daunting uh, problems in some places like the floods we've seen recently in Kentucky and and uh, the floods that occurred after Hurricane Camille in, in Virginia. And those kinds of things really seem like very, very difficult problems but i guess we you know we're starting to have the the possibility to provide some kind of alerting for at least the possibility of something that like that happening right is that that's where we are yeah exactly so the warnings you know a lot of a lot of times the warnings are good for those right i mean you get mm -hmm. an hour notice hour and a half and that's that's great but how do we how do we really look at probabilistic forecasting to really get out ahead of time to say well you know there, again, you're going to deal with some false alarms associated with this, but thresholds that are crossed that you, you may want not want to take a chance with this today, mm -hmm. and you get enough time to be able to do something else, um, you know, get somewhere else and, and and go. So that's what we're looking at. There's ways to develop techniques through probabilistic, through ensembles to really tackle some of those really tough issues. Yeah. So is this is this something that you use for everyday forecasting? The this ensembling. Uh, of running multiple models and and so forth. I mean, hurricane world now, it's all about the ensembles, right? It's all about the consensus of of multiple models. Is is that the trend in uh, all forecasting of weather now? Not just hurricanes and and uh, well, hurricanes. I guess they're the main extreme event. Maybe maybe a, a you know extreme winter storm of some sort as well, although that doesn't seem quite as mainstream as, as hurricane ensembling. Now, and you're right, I think, I think it is. I think running those ensembles and you know, often on the ensembles, when you look at it in the end, provide a better solution, right? You can, you can dial up, dial down based on how the, the models initialized. You know, that model didn't initialize very well. It might dial that one down. You can, there, there's ways to be able to, to really look at those ensembles to get the, the best forecast. And, it, and if you could, if, if, if you could go ahead and do that on a regular basis, that's when you can see where some of these thresholds are crossed, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a day that, wow, we've, we've crossed a certain threshold. It could be heat, the number one killer, the, 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 the killer that we don't have enough conversation about. And, and it's, you, you cross certain thresholds that are met um, that could be heat in, a, in an urban area, or it, it could be you know, crossing that threshold in a weather, winter weather event or a tornado event, whatever it may be. But those ensembles are going to be important to really look at those probabilities, see where those thresholds are, are crossed. And, and I think that's where, you know, you, you really look at how we do 
business, I mean, the models are getting better. You can blend the models. They're, they're coming up with pretty good solutions. So you think about the, the meteorologists of the future. You think about um, the, the next batch of meteorologists, maybe hydrologists and others coming out of college. I mean, it's really going to be analyzing this, this probabilistic data and, and keying in on with science where thresholds are met, where you can find those high impacts and match that up with um, you know, those thresholds on the ground, emergency managers or what it could be. That matching of that up, that science with those, that risk, is, is just is going to be a huge need, need for that in the future as risk goes up. I mean, you're seeing these events last longer. They're more in intense. They're more frequent. Um, you're seeing all of this increase. So we need a huge effort going on from now into the next decades, of course, um, really trying to match up, match the science, and, and, and you look for places where the impact and the risk come together, and that's what we key on. That's what we get out there. Here's the danger. That's a different way of, of thinking, right? Because it's always, I'm going to put out a forecast. But now it's like, I'm going to give some information out there that matters, where people could be impacted. It's a different way to look at things. And I think I think we're going to be bending in that direction um, going forward. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that this is a new paradigm uh, for how we communicate the potential for extreme events. So I've been talking, talking about extreme events. I've been talking a lot about Hurricane Andrew lately, with the 30th anniversary coming up uh, later this month. And the biggest change, it seems to me, over the 30 years and maybe even over the last 10 years is the vast improvement of computing power and the whole set of strategies that were just not possible, uh, you know, 30 years ago or 10 or 15 years ago. Does that feel right to you? Yeah, what a difference. I mean, you remember the, you go back to, to Andrew and, and look at the forecast and you get these uh, changes at the last minute. I mean, it's, it's interesting with the computing power and some of the, the modeling that we have now, the ensemble approach. Um, I'll tell you, you know, you're going to have some storms behave better than others, but there's reasons for that. Mm -hmm. But you're, you're seeing a trend that if the storm's strong enough and this, you know, got a very solid pronounced center, I'll tell you, the models now do a great job with that, right? I mean, right. really look at it, track. Um, we, we've actually, it's interesting, we've actually um, doubled our accuracy in, in the intensity in the last three or four years. We're making a dent in the intensity as well, by the way. So that's always been the thing. How many interviews over the years we're getting really good with the, the track, but the intensity remains the challenge. We're making a dent. I think we're making a dent in that as well. There's still some challenges despite the computing power. There's still challenges with the genesis phase. Brian, I, I know we've talked about this before too. It's the genesis phase. It's, it's one of these things that we're, where, you know, if you have a short timeline, so you got three days before landfall and you have three centers as the storm starts to develop and you know there's gonna be rapid intensification, um, where that center is can make the difference between um, a major hurricane or not. It can make the difference between plus or minus 200 miles on where that storm ends up. So I think there's this, you know, the models are doing a great job associated with once we get development, we, we gotta look out to find ways in that genesis phase to get, get more time in the timeline. So I, I wanted to make that comment because that was always kind of in, in, important to me uh, looking further out in time but yeah the, the models are getting so much better so now it truly is um those timelines how do we extend the timelines we're more confident look at ida the confidence in that forecast that's probably the boldest forecast in hurricane center history honestly right. to go your major hurricane on the first advisory i don't it's, it's not it doesn't happen um that's the confidence that we have and then it's then it's making sure it's believable then it's making sure that that you know we have confidence in this this is actually going to happen so there's some social science associated with that so yeah it's staggering how far we've come honestly and it really is because of the computing power right we have the, all these possibilities because of computing power these days and as a matter of fact the weather service just deployed new supercomputers one main one and one backup uh, and that's going to just continue this trajectory you know does it bring something tangible to the table or does it just bring so many new possibilities to the table uh, so many possibilities the tangible part is we we have an upgrade to the the american model the gfs next year so it's going to be an incredible upgrade that the, the new computer is going to allow so look forward to seeing that but uh, the upgrade also allows us to do more of this ensemble it really is going to allow more ensemble forecasting it's really the the catalyst that we can do some of the the probabilistic forecasting you and i on on this um 
on, I was talking today, we, we focused a lot on that. I'm glad we did because we, we got to really look at how we're going to really implement that. That's going to allow us to, to be able to do that. The other thing is, you know, we got some, you know, we've started looking at some of the new hurricane models. I started thinking about PAFs. It's, it's a new model that, that's going to be great. And it's so much better than some of the other models. It's going to allow us to really focus on those better models. And you, you may be able to not run some of those other models, really try to clean up um, everything on the supercomputer to, to really um, have a situation that's more efficient. You can run uh, further out in time. Maybe you can run more resolution. You, it's going to allow um, quite a bit like that. But these these are monster computers, incredibly powerful. And I, and I think I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what's yet to come. But uh, wait, wait till some of these upgrades in the next few years. So for, for many years, we all looked at the European model first, right? When we're, when we're sitting down at the computer, we looked at the European model first. But now, honestly, I look at the American GFS model first for hurricanes. There have been some recent pretty spectacular European model f uh, failures. Uh, Hurricane Laura comes to mind. But in the um, and I know that there's a lot of cooperation between the modelers uh, at the Weather Service and the modelers uh, at the European Center. But is there a, a, a competition, um, you know, that, that you found there within the American modeling community that we want to beat the Europeans? Or is it really more of a cooperative, uh, let's all try and do the best we can? Or is it some of both, I, I would imagine? It's probably a little bit of both. I, I think you, know, you really saw some of that competition externally. It was, it was always this this model versus that model mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So there was there was a lot of competition. You, you see it, the analysis on social media. You see everybody's pretty quick to, to point out the, the different positives and negatives of the models. But behind the scenes, we're all working together. We're really sharing a lot of information. We're talking. Um, I, I think that cooperation is just pretty amazing. You see that across the globe. Right? If, great conversations, not just with, you know, with the folks at UK, but I mean, it, the folks in Japan, the, the, you know, you, we have a great relationship with the Canadians and we're all talking uh, constantly through this World Meteorological Organization. We talk and this job is interesting. Um, you know, at the Hurricane Center, I was the, in, I was basically the, the chair of the Hurricane Committee. Now I'm the U.S. rep for weather with the, the World Meteorological. What, a, what an incredible opportunity, right? Have you been to Geneva yet? Yeah, it's coming soon, it's later this year. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, what an opportunity to have these discussions, by the way, yeah. with, with other countries. They're having the same discussions, yeah. which is which is amazing across the globe. Because so, they're having the same the part, critical emergency extreme weather yeah. situations that they never had before. Yeah. We're all dealing with the same thing. That's what yeah. fascinates me about the WMO. But I, I did want to say, related to the, the two models, everybody has to realize this is something that I always tried to, to really push across is, you know, when, when you compare one or two models, we're, we're looking at dozens, 60, 70 different ensembles in those models, right? So we're looking at different scenarios with all those models and blending those together. So the blend will beat any individual model every time. So I think that's important to, to remember. You can, people get nervous or they're looking at the latest model on their, their phone or uh, on their computer, but the reality is the best forecast um, really still happens to be that blend and the actual forecast from the human. We're, we're still beating any individual model every time. Yep, it's all about the consensus. That's what I say. Don't, don't ask me about any one model. So there's a concept when we talk about the new forecast model or technique or something like that. And the question is whether it's skillful, which has a, a mathematical meaning, of course. But talk about what it means if we can determine something is skillful, which really means it's kind of skillful on average, but also you have to worry about the outliers, which can really be a problem. I mean, uh, I'm thinking of a seven-day forecast that you were making behind the scenes at the National Hurricane Center for some years, but yet Hurricane Florence kind of throws a wrench into the idea of the seven-day forecast because it's an outlier, right? Even though forecasts get better, you still have these outliers where suddenly the where at seven days it looks like it's going in the middle of the ocean it ends up being a a real threat well i know you've thought about this a lot this florence outlier kind of situation and we've seen you know, a few other storms as well what do you think that means for uh you know as as models get more skillful in general uh, but we know there will always be outliers how do we deal with that in a communications uh, paradigm in an extreme event, potential extreme event. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I remember that one 
clearly with, with Florence and it's, you know, look, I, I, when I, when I got the hurricane center job, I, I really, one of the things I really wanted to do, honestly, was I was trying, I really wanted our forecast to go out seven days. Mm-hmm. I really was trying to, um, find ways to be able to take our five day forecast and make it seven. The, the problem ended up being was those outliers. And, you know, and, and if you look at hurricane, this is the seriousness of the, the Florence situation. So if you have those outliers, the original six, seven day forecast recurred Florence out to the Atlantic, when you're up, when you're kind of approaching a weekend, that message will send everybody to the fish camp. It'll send everybody um, out for the, 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 you know, these weekends type of thing. So that's how serious this is. And as a result, what would happen is they would be looking at a very short timeline as Florence was approaching the Carolinas. Um, what do you do with, with a six or seven day forecast that has a, I don't know, 200, 300, 500 mile error? That, right. that, that's a big cone. How do, you commun- how do you communicate something like that without constantly putting every, everything in, into a cone? So it became a challenge getting there. There's still a lot of work and they're narrowing it down. They're knocking down the air. So there's some real techniques that are coming that's going to make that a reality at some point. So, but you always have outliers. I've seen, you have too, I know. You've seen where what really happens is that consensus, that cluster. You have these outliers, but it's that cluster what really happens. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen storms. You, you got the, I've seen flood events. I've seen storms that that you're playing catch up. You're always you're always trying to catch up to that outlier. You don't want to go all the way to that outlier, right? Because you don't want to go too far. But at the same time, that's what ends up happening. I, I, Michael, Michael was like that. Michael followed the path of the outliers in intensity, and right. and, and that's another example of that. That's what makes our job tough sometimes because you really try to go with you know the consensus of this, but the outlier becomes real. But then if you follow the outlier every time, you're you're going to be you're going to be constantly crying wolf, right? So it's it's an incredible tough balance, and that, that why there's there's still room for improvement in our modeling. There's still room for improvement in our analysis. Yeah, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I, I've said on this podcast and other places that I think as a meteorological community, we damage our credibility to some degree because we make seven and 10 day deterministic forecasts is every day and everybody can see them on the phone, right? Just weather forecasts, nothing to do with extreme events. And then it gets worse and extreme events. And we make them whether the weather pattern is well established or whether there's some kind of fork in the road where things could go one way or the other, but not likely down the middle. We're kind of forced to do that by public expectations and by the apps we've created. Do you think about that? And do you think there's a communication solution that maybe somehow, you know, doesn't set the paradigm of, of what we're going to, all the different things we're going to forecast, but it allows some adjustment based on the, the reality of the meteorological situation? Um, Hurricane Joaquin comes to mind where, you know, it was either going to turn into the Carolinas or it was going to go out to sea to Great Britain or something, you know, and almost certainly wasn't going to go down the middle because we could see why it was doing, some models were doing one thing and the other. Just wondering if you, you know, I know as a communications guy, I'm sure you've thought about this, but, um, you know, is there a, something more variable than having a format that we have to put the, the forecast into every time? Yeah, the first thing I thought of when you asked that question was going back to your, your comment earlier about the big event, the high impact event versus the, Versus the everyday event, right. because I, it's, it's an interesting observation. I mean, I, I play around with lots of different apps. I play around with the data. I'm just fascinated by information. And, and I see, you know, during, during this summer, I think it's fascinating that I can look out, I can look out eight, nine, 10 days. And there, there seems to a lot of times be a trend to not be as extreme with the heat. Mm-hmm. So if we're, we're, you know, we're, we're really almost record level in the nineties and, and then longer term, there seems to be some sort of uh I don't know if it's an averaging, I don't know really what it is, but it's interesting how it tries to, to taper out, but maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. So there's this everyday stuff that I think is is interesting when you look at the extended forecast. So how do you portray that? But the other part, so I don't know if you give scenarios, I don't know if you know 88 versus 95 is a, is, is a big enough scenario to give multiple scenarios on day 10, but I tell you, I think there's room to be able to give multiple scenarios when you're talking about a big event. You're, 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 mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're looking at, you know, I, I can think of all the briefings that I've given to, to officials or media. I mean, probably a thousand TV interviews 
a year at the Hurricane Center job, and it was about it was about that. Here's our forecast, but remember, if it, if this happens, this could be the scenario. If if you move this, you know, rain this way, this is what's going to happen. So don't cut it too sh sharp. Um, I think there's ways, at least, when we communicate to to decision makers to say. Um, here's what we think is going to happen, but if, if something's going to go wrong, this is what it would be. It would be stronger, or it would go this direction, and that could impact you a lot more. So a lot of it's going to be that, that communication. Now, how do you show that on a map? How do you show that, um, you know, to 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 everyone uh, to get that understood? I think there's ways with social science. We're gonna, Brian, we're gonna have to look at these this probabilistic information. We're gonna have to see how to portray it. We're gonna have to show some error bars associated. We're gonna, it's gonna be a lot of training. I think it's going to really help the whole enterprise be able to, to look at how to do that and come together and have conversations about how to portray it. In the end, it's portraying risk. It, 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 in the end, we're forecasting risk. We're forecasting impacts based on that risk. That's what we, we got to figure out how to do and, and, and see how somebody, right? And by the way, weather and impact to somebody, it's right where I'm standing. If it happened across the street, hey, it didn't happen to me type of thing. So how do we get to a level that, that really looks at that, but puts error bars on that and, and some what ifs associated with it. So anyway, I can go on and on with it. I think there's an incredible amount of growth there. Looking forward to students coming out of meteorology with, um, with emergency management degrees, with social science degrees, because there's a lot of things like that that we're going to have to figure out. Yeah, I think it's really all about on both ends is this idea of thresholding. For, so the weather service develops this sort of, uh, uh, you know, so things like we do with storm surge, where you where you have this percentage kind of idea, but also on the emergency management end and on the business end and on the other end, where they get used to having a threshold. And if this extreme event has a possibility of happening over 20% or whatever they've established as a standard, then they take action. And action is based on these thresholds. feels like to me that that's the way it's got to go. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your day like? Uh, um, what's your day like as director of the weather service? I mean, there are so many different components as you were talking about. I can imagine it's one meeting or a Zoom call about one completely different issue after the other. Is that what it's like? Yeah, there, there, there's quite a few, quite a few meetings. Um, and I think, um, look, I'm still doing things like this, which is wonderful. So I'm enjoying that. There's quite a bit of travel. So I've already been uh, visiting some offices, so I went to the Las Vegas office. I've, you know, been to the Milwaukee office here in Sterling, in in Virginia, uh, the Fort Worth office, and the River Forecast Center, the, the Weather Forecast offices. I, I I think it's important, so I think it's a big part of the job. So I've been doing a lot of that, the traveling. I, I sit in operations and say, how's it going? What do you need? How can I help you? And Brian, we didn't get to talk about this, but I set I set three priorities for the agency going forward. It's our number one, our people. Our infrastructure, our future, simple. You know, take, taking care of, we, we're full of passionate people. Uh, so if I could take care of them, I think we, they'll, they'll take care of the mission uh, without a doubt. We gotta shore up the infrastructure, make sure we got something good now and going into the future. And uh, the future, what are the future services? Mm -hmm. We talked about the probabilistic, all the stuff we talked about today, that's the future part. So um, I spend as much time as I can on that strategic look in the future and how we're gonna shape uh, the agency going forward. But yeah, there's everyday problems and the other part is, you know, just it's incredible. I get to work with, uh, you know, Congress to talk about, you know, uh, their support and programs and where we're going. So that that part of it, um, I had some of that at the Hurricane Center, but this is on a whole nother level. So, yeah, it's budget. It's um, taking care of everybody. It's, it's, it's really just vast. Every single day seems to be a whole different day. Yeah, I know how important taking care of taking care of the people is I know always been at the top of your list. It's uh, it's terrific. Well, I know every day is busy there, and thanks so much for taking the time uh, here today. It's been great to talk to you, and congratulations on the new job, and best of luck, and uh, we look forward to working with you going forward. Thanks, Brian. I enjoyed this. Let's keep on doing this. It's great just to, just to talk. I have a place just to talk. <laughs> yeah, I agree. All right, Ken, thanks very much, and I'll be right back. All right, thank you. Thank you. And welcome back. 
Just think about what a job being the director of the National Weather Service is. Overseeing 122 local offices across the country is just one part of it. There's new science, computer models, infrastructure, operational policies, and so much more. If I know Ken, there's going to be even more emphasis on how the forecast and the science produced and developed within the Weather Service is communicated now. Even more than under Louis Uccellini, and Louis introduced a wide range of projects and initiatives, all to communicate better. Well, coming up on uh, next week's podcast, we're going to have a special version of the podcast with two of the heroes of Hurricane Andrew in honor of the 30th anniversary. Dr. Bob Sheets will be on. Bob was the indefatigable director of the National Hurricane Center in 1992, and he led the team at the Hurricane Center through the harrowing and exhausting experience of forecasting an extreme hurricane, plus dealing with its physical impact on the National Hurricane Center and on the homes and the families of the staff, including his own home. You'll want to hear from Dr. Bob Sheets. Also, Kate Hale will be on. Kate was the Dade County Emergency Manager at the time of Andrew and was more responsible than anybody for finally getting help and support to the families in the hurricane impact zone that were in a desperate situation. It was all being drawn out by an intractable bureaucratic tangle. That continued until Kate spoke up and broke the logjam. That's on our next podcast coming up next week, the week of the 30th anniversary of Hurricane Andrew. Be sure you subscribe to the Tracking the Tropics podcast wherever you get your podcast, so you get an alert when the new podcast is posted. And a reminder, remember to download the Fox Weather app first. You get your local forecast without a bunch of annoying ads that get in the way all the time. And you can watch the live stream of Fox Weather on your phone or your iPad by just clicking on the home screen there in the upper right. And you can watch Fox Weather at foxweather.com. Or on the Roku channel, YouTube TV, Amazon Fire, Fios TV now, and lots of other platforms. So I'll see you there on the Fox Weather stream when the tropics are active. And follow me on Twitter at B Norcross and on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Brian Norcross. Be well and stay informed. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.